This is Castle One. Race off the speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another deep dive into the life of one of sailing's great. And this month, what you are about to hear is a series of stories that are nothing less than sailing folklore. Stories from a man that was right there in the very thick of it when sailing history was made. It was a fascinating chat, that I can assure you. Before we get going, a couple of things. There's been a bit of a delay to this month's pod. You may well have noticed. To those of you who got in touch to ask, apologies for the slight pause, but it's been a busy few months. Amongst other things, I've been super busy with Dika Fari on our double-handed offshore campaign. And we've also been producing a series of films taking you behind the scenes with our Geno Sunfast 3300 as we prepare for this summer's Round Britain and Ireland race. So it's been busy here in Cowes. If you haven't watched the films, check them out via the podcast YouTube channel. Also, a massive thanks to all of you who got in touch after the last podcast. We do love to hear from you. And thanks too to all of you that took the time to head over to buymeacoffee.com. It makes a big difference. And once again, some of you have been very generous. So for that, a big, big thank you. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and want to support it, then it's all very simple. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's super quick, super easy, and it's greatly appreciated. So this month's guest, I sat down to chat with Tom Whidden while we were both on the wonderful island of St. Bart's earlier this year. He's a remarkable character, a great storyteller, who has an absolute and unapologetic love for the sport of sailing. As a teenager growing up sailing on Long Island Sound, the young Tom Whidden famously declared that his dream was to become a sailmaker and race in the America's Cup. Since then, he's raced eight cup campaigns and has, since the 1980s, been very heavily involved in North Sales. His cup career spans the period that saw the New York Yacht Club lose the cup to Alan Bond's Australia 2 in 1983, before winning it back in 1987. If you're a fan of Dennis Connor stories, you're in the right place. And at North Sales, Tom oversaw, amongst other developments, the adoption of 3DL, then 3DI, the revolutionary approach to sailmaking that now dominates raceboat fleets across the planet and has played a massive part in North's growth over almost 40 years in the boardroom. Awards? Tom has won many. He's in the America's Cup Hall of Fame, of course, and the American National Sailing Hall of Fame. But more than that, he's seen sailing history unfold right in front of him. And he's been so instrumental in pushing the boundaries of what's possible technically. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Tom Whitten. The entire day, Don McNamara yelled at me and Ted Hood couldn't have been nicer. When they told me to be a car dealer, I thought they were saying sailmaker because I wasn't listening very well. He comes up to me and he puts his hand up and he goes, I'm Dennis Connor. And I go, yeah, I know who you are. 
Tom, I'm honoured. Sailing royalty right here on my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And I feel the same about you. So we both look up to each other. So I'll, and I love everything you do, Shirley. So keep us enthralled and interested and awake. Well, that's a lovely compliment. I mean, Tom, we are here in the beautiful St. Bart's, of course, sailing big super yachts. What are you up to here this week? Sailing, I assume. Well, as you know, I sail on Magic Carpet a lot over in Europe. Um, I try to do St. Bart's every year. Um, I bet I've done it 20 times, maybe even 25. Um, this week will be particularly nerve-wracking because you and Ian Walker are in my class, and I know that more than anything, you want to beat us, probably more so than just any other competitor. So I'm feeling a little pressure, but um, of course, Ian and I go back a ways, so we've had a lot of fun. But I still do quite a bit of sailing, and I sail on so many different kinds of boats. I sail on classic boats. I sail on big boats. I still do some one design racing. Um, my son just bought a uh, 40-footer, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing that because I have grandkids now. And as you know, one of my grandkids has gotten to be a pretty good sailor, so maybe I can learn a few things. The dynasty continues. That, that's great. I mean, as I said, Tom, we're currently here in St. Bar. It's a beautiful spot, surrounded by some of the world's I mean, most wonderful yachts. It's well documented, Tom, that your ambitions as a child were to sail in the America's Cup and make sails. It must give you a lot of satisfaction being here. There's an awful lot of sails with massive sails with the North Sails logo on them, but not just here, of course. I mean, how does it feel having masterminded such a, a global sailing brand? Well, you know what's funny about that, Shirley, is that when I joined North, it was right after the 87 Cup or, or during the 87 Cup. I ran into Terry Kohler, who owned the company, and we decided to get together and I said to him, you know, there are a couple of things that I think North is a little deficient on, and I'd love to improve with your enthusiasm to go along with me. I said that I, North was known for sort of doing a great job for one design racing and sort of smaller ocean racing boats. And Hood back in those days was still quite proficient and still sort of dominated the big boat racing. So you asked me if I'm proud, what I'm very proud at of is that North did transition into much bigger sails and they learned how to make them fast and easy to handle and, and uh, all the things you see out there today. So I'm probably most proud of that and I'm most proud of our team because the, the, uh, the smart and talented guys at North um, have enabled me to do what I wanted to do at North only because they're so good. And without the great team that, that North has become and, what, and is, um, none of this could have happened. Well, we're going to get back to life at North Sales in a bit, Tom. But first, we're going to go back away to the late 1940s. I have to excuse, <laughs> I have to explain. Um, St. Bart's is a tiny island with, uh, with a very small airport. And so if you hear some airplane noise listeners, that's, that's what it is. They go all day. But let's, let's go back, Tom, to the late 1940s, the beautiful Westport, Connecticut. So on Long Island Sound, northeast of New York City, birthplace to one Thomas A. Witten. What kind of childhoods did you have, Tom? Wow. We're really going back. 
So I had a wonderful childhood. My dad was pretty much all the, his life while I was alive was a madman. I don't know if you've ever seen the show with John Hamm that's called Mad Men. That really took place in the 50s, so a little bit later and maybe even the 60s. But he was an advertising guru from Madison Avenue, New York City. So we always lived around New York. And Westport was a wonderful place to grow up in. It was very suburban. There were 5,000 people living there then. I'm sure it's much, much larger now. Um, it was just a great place to, to grow up. And I grew up on a hill that basically overlooked the water. Our home didn't really overlook the water. But I spent a lot of my time in sort of my late single digits, nine, ten years old, walking down to the local yacht club, which was called Cedar Point Yacht Club. And we raced a boat called a Super Sprite, which was kind of a bathtub with a sail. And um, like a lot of young kids, I, I liked it. But I really looked up to the sailing instructors. There was a, a wonderful lady named Wilson Leinberg. And I thought she was just the most beautiful woman in the world. And there was this guy named Lee Demarest, who was a big, tall, good-looking, tanned, you know, blonde, curly hair, and I just go, I just said, hey, these are the type of people that I'd like to be. And so I sort of took to sailing, not only because I loved the sailing, but because I loved the, um, the people that were doing it, and I loved the feeling of it. And um, I immediately started to like the competitive side of it. And they taught me to, you know, tr how to feel the wind and how to look at the currents and we had lots of tide back then and or in that area and um i absolutely loved it and i just moved on and started sailing blue jays and went to the midget championships and then moved into a lightning and went to the junior championships and i wasn't spectacular i was a good sailor and i had good um i had good sense you know for it but I didn't win all the races. So, and my dad bought me a Blue Jay that leaked and wasn't one of the better boats. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned how to make the boat go. But yeah, Westport and my parents, my dad wasn't a competitive sailor, but he always had a sailboat. So they just turned me onto it. And they were very involved. My parents got very involved in the yacht club, in the scene there. They eventually moved the yacht club to a better, better place. And you know, I just looked up to everybody that sailed and I loved doing it. I think I had good sense for it when I was younger. And the two um, sailing school instructors that I learned under sort of took that over and instilled that in me and taught me how to be intense enough to be competitive, but also that there were a lot of things that you couldn't control. And if you got uptight about all of them, you weren't going to be a very good competitor because you would get lost in the in the munitia. You know, we have this saying that, you know, that if you think inside the boat, you don't really see what's going on around you. And they were very good about teaching me that. So I think that was good for me at an early age. We all need a good, good mentor, don't we? Everybody needs that. Tom, I mentioned this earlier, but you're credited at 16 as saying you wanted to sail in the America's Cup and make sales. I mean, was there any other option or was the young Tom Whitten set on a life working in sailing? Yeah, so that's easy to talk about and hard to do, obviously. But when I was 16, I wanted to be a sailing instructor. 
because I looked up to these two sailing instructors that taught me and I felt like I was good enough at that point to become a sailing instructor. But I was too young, generally. I think I might have even been 15 when I did it. So I applied for a job at the Wiano Yacht Club. And a, and a man named Robert Gill, he was a little grumpy actually, but I loved him eventually, but he was a little bit grumpy. And I called him, he called me and he said, you know, we're looking for sailing instructors. We've got three and we need a fourth. And we think you're too young, but a couple of people have um, said to us that you act a little older than your age and you're quite a good sailor and whatever. So we want to give you a try. The only thing is I'm not going to pay you as much as I'm paying the other guys. And I said, no problem. A summer in, in Cape Cod would be great. And they give me housing and, and whatever. So I showed up and the three other instructors were older than me. One went to Yale, one went to Columbia, and one went to some other great school. And here I was, um, I think a senior in college or a senior in high school, just going on to a, a, a college called Colby College in Maine. So I was quite a bit younger than the other guys. So we went about a week and the pecking order sort of got established and it turned out I was the best sailor of the group. So I took the expert class and the other guys took the, the lower classes. And so Bob Gill, like about three weeks later, comes up to me in his kind of grumpy voice and he goes, hey, I hear you're teaching the experts and I hear that you're, you've got a little travel team that you're taking around to do team racing with the other clubs, which they had never done before. And he kind of cleared his throat in his grumpy way and he said, you know, I think you're going to work out fine, so we'll give you the same amount of money as the other guys. So I felt pretty good about that. I did take all the young kids around to, uh, to team races and we ended up being the top team race team and I really loved it. But you, you know, you might have read about this, but I ran into a man named Jack Fallon. And Jack Fallon was the um, executor for the Kennedy Family Trust. And one of the teams that we had to race against at Wiano and when we went around, one of them was over in Egertown in Martha's Vineyard. One of them was in Hyannisport where the Kennedys all lived. Um, and we, sure enough, we ended up doing team races with Hyannisport all the, all the while. And I eventually ended up getting to know the Kennedys and Caroline Kennedy was of the age that my kids were. So that all made it pretty heady and pretty fun. And I made a lot of contacts there. But this guy, Jack Fallon, sort of took a liking to me. And he was, he was sort of the best sailor in a boat called the Wiano Senior. It's a gaff rigged um, 25 foot boat, quite difficult to get the most out of. And, and um, I learned to be a crew on it and got pretty good at it. And I sailed with him a lot. And we used to go over to his house. I liked his daughter. And uh, we went over and talked sailing all the time. And he loved it. He couldn't get enough of it. And I was so intellectually curious. I'm sure I was a pain in the ass, but he, he taught me all he knew about sailing. And he'd done some larger ocean racing and he had sailed on some 12 meters. And he actually took me one day to go sailing with Ted Hood on the 12 meter called Nefertiti. This is before you were born, of course. But um, I was 16 years old. They put me on the grinder and a guy named Don McNamara was the skipper. Ted Hood was the 
the sailmaker on board, and I think he did the tactics also. And the entire day, Don McNamara yelled at me, and Ted Hood couldn't have been nicer. And I kind of looked at Ted Hood, and you know, I saw him drawing little notes on the sails and looking at the sails, and he probably didn't say 14 words the entire day. He was such a quiet, self-effacing, wonderful guy. And I just said, here's another guy I want to be like. So I wanted to be like Jack Fallon a little bit because he was so intellectually curious. And Ted Hood was brilliant. And he was the, you know, he was the lead dog at the time. North was, you know, a fledgling uh, company on the West Coast. So anyway, um, the summer went great. I came back for another summer, got pretty good at it. And that's when I really got into it. And that's when I really said to myself, hey, I'd like to make a career of this. You know, I'm back to my dad. He commuted to New York City every day and wore a jacket and tie and carried a briefcase. That just looked horrible to me. So, you know, here I am having been a sailmaker my whole life. I didn't listen very well in school. I kid my I kid my friends, you know, who make much more money than me. And I go, you know, I didn't listen very well in school. And I, when they told me to be a car dealer, I thought they were saying sailmaker because I wasn't listening very well. You guys are making all the money, but I'm having all the fun. Never have regretted it. And by the way, I've done fine, so no big deal. You've had an amazing life. Um, Tom, you were born just after the war, of course. Yeah. There was a 19-year pause in cup competition, but in 1958, the cup was back. Sailed in Newport, the birth of the 12-meter cup era, of course. You'd have been maybe, I mean, 11 years old at that time. Yeah. What are your first memories of the cup, Tom? Newport being, I mean, just a couple of hours up the coast from Westport. So just to digress just a little bit, is my mom was in the Red Cross and she came to London when they were bombing London in the war. So I had no sense of the war because I was born after the war. But, um, you know, to hear her what that was like and the fact that she met so many great people in your country and went through all that just to be a good person and to help out, um, I've always had a lot of respect for her for that. But, um, to, to your question, so yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an interesting time. It was probably a time when sailing was growing a lot because, you know, it had stopped for a while and the war had definitely stopped everything. You know, people's boats were being taken to help with the war. So um, having grown up in Westport, the skipper of the boat you're talking about, Columbia, or if you're from Newport, you call it Columbia-er, because they can't pronounce Columbia. Um, but anyway, um, Briggs Cunningham was the skipper. And Briggs Cunningham was from the next harbor from where I grew up. And he sailed some of the boats that we all sailed during that period of time. He was more of a car racer, and he designed cars called the Cunningham cars. But he was a spectacular sailor. And so I had a little taste of what it was like. But I... Honestly, to be totally honest, until I was had that sail on Nefertiti, I didn't really think much about sailing in the America's Cup or what the boats were all about. I really didn't focus that much on 58. Um, interestingly, Halsey Hershoff, who was my, my navigator in my first two cups, was the bowman on that boat, Columbia. 
So it, yeah, that was a good period for sailing. It was growing a lot. North was growing. Hood was still growing. Um, but I had, you know, I was still chasing girls and driving cars and sailing and doing whatever and trying to figure out how to get through college. I graduated in 1970. Um, after Jack Fallon got me so turned on to sailing and getting to know Ted Hood, I bought a fin, fin dinghy, and uh, started a little bit like your, your hero, Ben. I wasn't as good as Ben, but, um, and my training partner, during that time was a guy named Peter Conrad, and he had worked at North. He and I said, we both said, hey, let's start a sailmaking firm. He knew a little bit about, knew quite a bit about what he was doing, and I had no clue. You know, I had to learn from cutting sails to doing, I learned everything, which was really great. I'm glad I got the chance to do that. But that's what brought me to where I live right now, which is an hour east of Westport. And Soon after, I did quite a bit of fin sailing for about the first year, and then I figured making fin sails for $160 back then, or maybe $180, I wasn't going to get rich doing that. And it wasn't that I really wanted to get rich, but I wanted to make a mark in sail making. So I figured maybe I better figure out how to get into a little bit bigger boats. And that changed the game for me because I'd done really well in the fin, and I'd used what I'd learned there to get into big boats and start doing some ocean racing. And back then the SORC was a very popular regatta and I started doing those and the um, future got brighter as I went along. You were so young when you bought Substat Sales. 23 years old. I mean, the dream was My becoming- My own business. The dream was becoming a, a reality pretty early on, Tom. You were driven to make that happen. Yeah, and, and I did it, and, and this is a good story for young people because, and I, and I actually do some speaking at universities and whatever, and my, my, my story is don't do what your parents tell you to do. Do what will make you happy because you can waste five or six years easily and do something that you're happy with, and if you're really passionate and happy about it, you're probably going to make a good living out of it, and if you don't, how far are you behind? You're not really behind and you can always say, I did it. So it worked well for me because I was so passionate about it I, and I knew that I had to make a living and, and uh, I didn't care about being rich, but I just wanted to do something that I really enjoyed doing. And this is what I enjoyed doing at the time. And it's a good story for, any, for anybody. And you know, back to my point about being 16 or 17 and saying, wouldn't it be nice to try for the Olympics? And wouldn't it be nice to be a sailmaker for my life? And wouldn't it be wild if I could ever get into the America's Cup? So to have those dreams and make it happen, you know, most people don't do it. So my attitude at 23, how bad, you know, I think the first year I paid myself $5,000, which, you know, probably then was worth a little more than it is today, but that's not much money. And Betsy and I met each other in, you know, round 27. So I had four or five years that I could kind of screw up for a while, but it went pretty well. Pretty brave. Yeah. Brave to take that on. My next question, Tom, refers to stuff of sailing legends. So I'm not sure how true it is, but at the time, a certain Dennis Connor was hatching a plot to campaign for the 1980 Cup and wanted your help. Tell us how you met Dennis. Tell us that story. Oh, that's a great story. So it wasn't quite as easy as what 
what you're referring to, but I had sailed against him for a few years. I was on a boat called Love Machine, and Dennis was sailing a number of boats called Willowa. And, and uh, we got to know each other as being competitors a little bit. And in the 1979 SORC, which Dennis, this was his top regatta, his dream, you know, that's, he would come back east and he took a lot of pride in performing well at the SORC. And the, the setup for the SORC is that you go down and you practice for like two weeks in Tampa, Tampa Bay. The first race is a, is a day race or a short overnight race. The second race is a race from Tampa Bay to Fort Lauderdale. So you go all the way around. You try to figure out how much of the Gulf Stream you try to get into. To get to the Gulf Stream, you have to go way out of your way to get there. But then you get three knots of or four knots of current. So it's a tricky race and it's a fun race. So we kind of train for a week and a half in Tampa Bay and then the first race. So sure enough, I win the first race and Dennis doesn't. So the second race, we start off out of Tampa Bay and we go all the way around to Fort Lauderdale. And I can't remember exactly, Shirley, but maybe I finished third and Dennis finished fourth or something like that overall. We both did well in our classes, our respective classes. And we go into the director yacht yard in Fort Lauderdale and everybody kind of hangs out there and there's a week off. So most people that are, have a job or have a family go home, work for a week, go see their family, reconnect because they've been away for three weeks. And, um, so I was going to do the same. So I get done with the race. I'm kind of, you know, we've been out on the water for a couple of days straight, kind of beat. And I see, I see Dennis walking over to where I'm standing uh, alongside the boat. And he comes up to me and he puts his hand up and he goes, I'm Dennis Connor. And I go, yeah, I know who you are. And I've been racing against you all week. And, uh, I guess you know who I am, right? And he goes, yep. And the guys like you. I'm going, what guys? You know, I'm going, my guys, your guys. And he's kind of, you know how Dennis is. He can kind of be, uh, he can kind of be off the cuff and friendly, or he can be a little grumpy, but he goes, uh, it seems like everybody. I'm going, oh, that's a nice compliment. Thank you. And he looks at me kind of with his beady eyes and he goes, you're beating me. And I go, yeah, but the regatta is young. We got four more races to go. And uh, he said, yeah, but you're beating me. And I said, well, the regatta is young, but thank you. So he goes, where are you going? And I said, I'm, I live in Essex, Connecticut, and I'm going to, I've got, I've got a plane in about an hour and a half from Fort Lauderdale to, to uh, Hartford. He looks at me and he goes, good, I'll go with you. And I'm going, Dennis, you're not listening to me. I'm going home to go to work and I'm going home to be with my family. And I know you live in San Diego and Hartford is that way and San Diego is that way. And it's about a thousand miles out of your way to go to Hartford. He goes, no problem. I'll go to Hartford with you and then I'll go to San Diego. And back then you probably could. So um, he goes, good. So we go to the airport together. We sit in the back of this huge uh, L-1011 Eastern Airlines plane, have like six or seven cocktails and sit in the very back seat of the plane. And the flight attendants were so nice to us. They kept coming over and 
over-serving us and whatever. And Dennis goes into the whole story of his 1979-80 cup. And he says, he says, you know, he tells me all about it. And I'm going, great, you know, that sounds great. Um, and finally, he gets to the punchline. He goes, I want you to be my trial skipper. And I'm saying, wow, that's a pretty good way to get started in the America's Cup, be a trial skipper. So most people have to try out and start in the bow and then move to the move to the back. And, you know, I would have been a hopeless bow man, probably even back then. So I never would have tried for that. So I said, you know, kind of halfway there, I said, well, that's a nice offer and a nice thing. But, you know, I have to make a living and I've got a family. And would you buy some sales from me? He looks at me and he goes, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going, okay. Um, and he goes, yeah, so here's my plan. Hood dominated last time. I have a lot of respect for Lowell North. So I'm going to get Hood and North Sales and I'm going to see which are the best. And I said, okay. So I said, hey, look, you know, this is a really nice offer, but let me just check with my family and my business partner. And, you know, I said, I'd, I'd do that and I'll let you know this week. So Betsy says, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Give it a rip. You've always wanted to be in the America's Cup. Here's a good way to start. And my business partner, I think he was a little jealous, but he said, you know, I said, hey, look, here's a chance. You know, I'm going going to it with the thought that I'd try to eventually make some sales. So he goes, OK. So I go all summer with Dennis. We had a wonderful summer. We had such tight competition. So he, he asked me to go up and teach all the, the people that weren't quite as good on the boat how to sail. And I was learning myself. So we went to Newport for a month straight or whatever on the weekends, long weekends. We went Friday, Saturday, Sunday in May, which is still can be quite cold. And he said on Memorial Day weekend, which is the end of May, our new boat will be done. So you'll sail Enterprise till then. We'll bring Freedom, the new boat, up there. And you can sail Enterprise and I'll sail the new boat. So I go, great. So I teach the kids how to sail. The very first day I go sailing, we have no tender. You know, we're sailing away from the dock. And, you know, it was a horror show. I was just learning how to sail a 12 meter. We go up under the bridge because it's wicked foggy out, put the spinnaker up. And the first thing that happens to me is one of the guys falls overboard. One of the young guys. Dense fog, no no uh, powerboat with us, nobody else out there. Back then you didn't have GPSs, you know, you had a Lorenz A or C or whatever. So we were really good. I turned the boat head to wind. I said, guys, do the best you can to get the spinnaker down. I looked at the compass, exactly the heading we were going. Sure enough, we turned around and found the guy. So that was our first day sailing. And we had a couple other horror stories, but we learned how to sail the boat pretty well. So Memorial Day weekend comes along and Dennis says, I'm going to come out from the West Coast and bring the A team, you know, all the hot shots. You bring your B team and we'll race against each other. I'm going, OK, but I have to go on the Block Island race, so I won't be there till Sunday morning. So I get there Sunday about midday and I walk down the dock that I'm used to walking down and there's this huge tender there waiting for us. The guy driving the tender is a guy named Ken Gunderson and he's calling me sir. You know, I'm 28 years old or 29 years old and he's calling me sir. 
They've all got uniforms on and, and he left me freedom, the brand new boat that he hadn't sailed yet. So he leaves me, he says to the guys, and he leaves me a lot of the A-team. He tells the guys, tell Widden to get the boat tuned up. And when he's ready, call me and we'll do the first, uh, first trial. So I'm looking around the dock and they've got, you know, some pretty good guys, all good guys, and Olin Stevens. And I didn't really know Olin at this point. And he's like my God, you know, he's a God. Um, so I had a wonderful day. I went, we went out, tuned up the boat. It was actually pretty well tuned. The rig wasn't perfect. And I, I was up under the bridge in Newport. We called Dennis and I go, okay, Dennis, we're ready. And I see, you know, free uh, enterprise coming out of the, the haze. It wasn't foggy, but he comes out of the haze. Not a word is spoken, comes in the haze. I'm going along on starboard, takes the spinnaker down, jib goes up and he pulls in right alongside me and we start trialing. So we go under the bridge, we're going dead even. We're going under the bridge, I got a little bit on him. I got a little bit forward on him, but I couldn't tack. And I get up to the shore and I'm going, I get on the radio and I go, hey Dennis, there's, there's some rocks over here, so maybe you better tack and, um, and give me a break here. And he goes, you tack. So I tack and he tacks right on my face, you know, and the summer begins. That's so Dennis. The summer that's begins. A, that's a great story. So we go up the, the shore and he tacks on me every single time. It wasn't And long. I'm going, this is going to be a long summer. It wasn't long, Tom, was it, until he asked you to join the A-team, the Hot Shots. You know, how did that conversation go? So we had a, a great summer. We had lots of fun. We gave each other awards for, you know, one of us hit the other backstay ducking or, you know, we hit the tower. There used to be a tower out there called Breton Tower. One day I got him up. We were using it as a mark. One day I got him head to wind and he got really slow and backed in under the tower. He was so angry with me. Um, but, but he said, you know, race as hard as you can. So by the end of the summer, he, uh, he had to go to the, that famous, um, race that was so windy. What's the long race? The fast net race. You know, the one that was the disaster race. And he said, would you stay behind and take care of the boats and keep the guys sailing? And by the way, you can build any sail you want for the boat and I'll pay for it. You just tell me what you want. You can build a mainsail a jib or a spinnaker. And he said, and I'm thinking about asking a couple other guys to be the trial skipper because I want you on the boat. And I said, great. And I'll build a sail and I'll let you know what it is when you get back. So we kept the program going. We took a little break. We kept the program going. And I knew at that point I was going to be on the boat. So I kept skippering one of the boats and we got Jack Sutpen to come and skipper one of the other boats. And meanwhile, while he was gone, the two weeks, I thought the, the mainsails were pretty good, the jibs were fairly good, but I thought the spinnakers were horrible. So we built a spinnaker and it was called the, we had a name for it, it was called the 45. And um, when Dennis, the first day Dennis got back, I was still a trial skipper because he hadn't organized anything else. So he goes, let's go out to Block Island. So we sail all the way out to Block Island. He says, okay, we're going to turn around. We're going to test spinnakers all the way back. And the first spinnaker we're going to test is the one you just built. 
So we put it up on, no, so he puts it up on his boat and we put up the best sail that we've got in the same range. And sure enough, he starts pulling away. And so he calls me up after, like we do 10 minute tests. So he goes, let's swap spinnakers. So we swap the spinnakers and sure enough, my boat goes faster. So he calls me up and he goes, you were sandbagging, right? I said, no, I wasn't. And he said, I don't believe you, so let's swap them again. And we did it again. And we did it like about five times, swapped it back and forth. And every time the new sail. So that kind of started the, um, you know, that started the, 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 the way for Sobstead sails at that point. And we built half the jibs and most of the spinnakers for that, for that uh, cup, and which was great. I enjoyed it. But then I switched over to the boat and I was a tailor and, you know, Dennis always asked me if, if I would keep an eye on the tactics too. So I did, I did a little of everything and I was kind of the boat speed guy and sort of put me in charge of the crew and I loved it. And that's how I got started. Here I was in the America's Cup. The Cup was the coolest thing going. It was the pinnacle of the sport. Guys thought they were supposed to lose when they came to race the New York Yacht Club. So we beat them by 10 seconds. So now we're up 3-1. What could go wrong from there? In September 1980, as you say, you were in the America's Cup. You fulfilled the other half of your dream, sailing in the Cup. I mean, do you remember how you were feeling, Tom, as, as that race, as the first race got underway? Yeah, and surely you, you have to remember, it's quite, the, the boats are different today by a lot. But the whole feeling was a little different because you didn't do it for money. You did it because you loved your country and you loved it because you loved to sail. And the cup was the coolest thing going. It was the pinnacle of the sport. It was what every young person dreamed to do. And, you know, I know that you've had quite a bit of experience with the Olympics. And I think the Olympics breeds the probably the best sailors, arguably the very best. But the America's Cup has always had an aura that the, the Olympics never gets. And I think it's a little bit because of the size of the boat and the, and the, uh, the aura of the, of the uh, Newport Summers and the white uniforms and, the, and all the, uh, the ambiance that's around the America's Cup, the Kennedys and the, you know, the, all the people that watched it. All the American presidents went out and watched the America's Cup. And, so it was pretty heady stuff. And for me to go out for that first race, I, I remember the feeling quite well. I, I remember I was nervous, but we had trained so much that Dennis, you know, he, he had this whole mantra that you, un, you uncover, you, you turn over every stone, you get all the fear out of, you know, whatever happens to you in those two years. He wrote a book called No Excuse to Lose. And the whole mantra is that if you get to the point where you feel like you've done everything you can do, there's no excuse to lose. And so many people I've realized since give themselves an excuse to lose. Like it's my rating or I didn't buy the best kind of sales or I didn't spend as much money as the other guy or I didn't do the rating analysis or I didn't sand my bottom. And therefore, you know, it's okay to lose if you lose. But it's, it's not that everybody, everybody wants to win, but the people that do enough to win and get to a point where they have no excuse at the end. And Dennis was very much like that. 
So he pounded into us so much, you know, that if you do everything you can, you're just going to not have an excuse to lose and you'll go perform much better because of it. So I remember the first start. We, we started better than, uh, than um, the Australians did, particularly in that cup. We did in 83 also, but we were better match racers. We started a little bit better than them, but we started on a pretty even line and they were delured. And I was kind of the guy that could see under the jib and everybody else was on the windward side. So everybody's going, how are we going? And I'm going, we're going pretty good. And we were going pretty well. Um, I don't know if you remember the regatta at all, but it was the regatta that had the big bendy rig for the first time. So the Australians were quite clever and they used the big uh, bendy rig. Wasn't so good once you got to 12 knots or 13 knots or so, but it was stunningly good in under that. And the second race was in real light air. And, you know, the history books will tell you that we were quite far behind and the time limit ran out. So we got to do a do-over. And the second time, so we're one, one, we're, we're, we won the first race. Second race, the time limit expires. The third race, it's light air again, and the time limit doesn't expire, and they kick our butt. So now we're 1-1. I'm going, hey, this isn't that easy. But luckily, the wind came up and we won the next three races. So the cup was over and it was wonderful. It was just a great feeling. And, you know, we all committed to do the next one. And, and um, we figured we, know, we knew what we were doing. How was Dennis in that regatta? I mean, what was Dennis like to sail with at, at that time? So, first of all, he and I hit it off. And if you hit it off with Dennis... He's the most loyal, nicest person to be with. I mean, I wouldn't say that he, he, he expects a lot of you. And if you make a mistake, he lets you know you made a mistake. But we got to the point where it was sort of yin and yang. And, and you know, I'm sure it was like Coots and Butterworth. In fact, both Coots and Butterworth told me that they tried to be like us. You know, they watch films and whatever. And tried to be like Dennis and I, because we got to the point where you didn't really have to say a lot. You know, there are two wheels in a 12 meter. And if I'm the lured and the other boat's real close, I take the wheel and he trusts me hundred percent. And, you know, as you go along, he trusts you on the calls you're making because eventually, and Dennis was, he, he's a very intuitive sailor. You know, he, he can, he makes good decisions and he knows, he knows by the seat of the pants more than most guys. He wasn't the most natural sailor that I've ever sailed with. So he always said, I got to work harder. But when he was in his zone and he was good, there was nobody any better. In 87, I'm jumping ahead, but in 87, we said, hey, Dennis, we got to win this regatta and you have to concentrate only on steering and fundraising. And that's all you can do. And he said, okay, I'll do that. And he, if you told him to go 8.32 knots, he went 8.32 the entire day. It wasn't 8.38. It wasn't 8.24. It was 8.32. So I would say that intuitively and naturally, intuitively, he was one of the better sailors I've ever sailed with. Maybe the best, probably the best. But natural seat of the pants, he wasn't the best. So he worked harder. And he worked hard. He worked really hard at it. So he was a good guy to sail with and he trusted the guys around him and 
he was a good team leader and and um you know he was a pain in the ass at times but i loved the guy i mean i thought it was great he taught me so much about sailing and about life you know in his own quirky way you know he was always um he always had these sayings we bet we bet on time and distance six million times in our career sailing every time he'd say we're out in the middle of the pacific time to the dock i said hour and 20 minutes so he'd go an hour and 21 minutes and we'd bet we bet a dollar every time and he, um, you know, we probably won equal amount of times. We bet in the car. We bet uh, walking. How long would it take to get there? Bet on everything. And we got really good at time and distance. So good. So he's just that kind of guy. You know, he, he uncovers every stone. Super competitive. I mean, he's not an, an easy man. I think that's well documented. Why, why do you think you hit it off? Why, what did he... What did he see in you, I guess, that he, that he liked? Because I think I was a, I think that what he needed to have, I had. So I had a sort of natural ability to communicate with him in a way that was not so intense or not so laid back or, you know, just the right amount of pushing. And he knew, you know, I never raised my voice. Well, I do, I do if, you know, I have to get, project to somebody else or whatever but i never raised my voice with him and and uh he likes that and he likes he likes things presented in a couple ideas you know and i go well if we did this this is what i think could happen but the guy's a little faster so why don't we take a little risk um you know and he kind of thinks about it and says okay let's do that you know and he's he's good about ingesting data you know if you tell him something He's very good about ingesting it and making a decision. So I, I think we're just, you know, we just hit it off and we became good friends. You know, he was kind of for a long period of time there, we probably were best friends with each other. And that that helps to a, de de a degree. You know, sometimes if you got too close, then the, the respect might be different, but we were just far enough away. You know, we lived on opposite coasts and you know, I was always available to him, but I wasn't so available that, you know, we didn't drive each other crazy. So it just worked out well. I have to divert briefly. Along with Dennis on the back of the boat was one Halsey Hereshoff, who you, who you mentioned. He was sailing in his fourth cup, a, a naval architect in his own right, of course, but also grandson to the great Nathaniel Hereshoff, designer of multiple cup-winning yachts at the turn of the century an absolute legend uh, of yacht design. And you're sailing with his grandson. I mean, what was Halsey like? So Halsey, um, we all looked up to him because he was a little older and he was uh, had done more cups than any of us. And he had some, some things that had happened in the various cups that made us respect him. You know, he got, I think there was one race where he was racing the French and Bruno Bick got lost and Halsey, you know, with, without great instrumentation, did a great job finding the mark and, you know, won the race for them. So things like that made us respect him a lot. And, you know, the name, Hairsoff, you know, nobody's, you know, there's a little intimidation there, but he was just one of the guys. He, he was a quirky guy. He fit in perfectly. He and I got along great. Um, we just hit it off really well. So that was another, 
another guy that just added to the strength of the boat. And it wasn't because he had every skill. Remember, he was the bowman on Columbia. So he had quite a career. In hindsight, of course, that win in 1980 was massive, wasn't it? The last win in 129 years, an incredible winning streak. Tell me, in 1980, did it feel like just another cup win? It was your first, of course, but the trophy, it belonged, didn't it, at the New York Yacht Club? It was bolted down. I don't know if that's true, but they say that. I mean, it, it was expected that you would win. So that's very perceptive that you say that, because if you think about 83 and you really drill into what went wrong in 83. So heretofore, to your point, guys thought they were supposed to lose when they came to race the New York Yacht Club. And we thought we were supposed to win. And the, the fact that we thought we were supposed to win and they thought they were supposed to lose gave us an advantage. And remember, Shirley, that slowly but surely, the, the American technology not being able to dribble outside the country was being eased. So in 1983, for the first time, the Australians really went outside the country to start looking at what technology resided outside the country. And, um, you know, there's a whole story around the keel not being designed in the country of origin. But, hey, listen, you know, that, I, I don't get upset by that in any one way. But the to your point, you know, yeah, I mean, we thought after 1980, we did such a good job. Why couldn't we just come back and do it in 1983? But aha, we could do even better this time and build even another boat. We only built one boat for 1980. We built three boats for 1983. So what could go wrong? A lot. So we built three boats and we went to Johann Valentine, which you know probably wasn't the best call. We went to Sparkman and Stevens probably a little past their heyday. Um, you know, Sparkman and Stevens up until this point had won every cup. So we thought that, uh, or won many cups in the 12 meter era. Um, we thought that we were doing the right thing, giving them a chance and then giving Johan Valentine, who had, who had done some work in, in 12 meters, we thought that would be a good way to go forward. So we bought, built one of each. What most people don't know is that the boat magic that, uh, that Johann Valentine designed was below the minimum waterline and never could have raced in the cup. So even if it was fast, which it wasn't, we could have never raced. Then there was Spirit, the boat that was designed by Sparkman Stevens was a big boat and quite heavy and maybe had some potential, but wasn't really up to freedom so speed. So here we are with two boats that can't even beat the boat we raced last time. And the boat that we raced last time could barely beat uh, Enterprise, which lost to Courageous, which won in 1977. So if you think about what went on between 1977 and the end of us building Spirit, there, we hadn't even come up with a faster boat. So we go, we go back to our people that are sponsoring us and we go, okay, we haven't done too well so far. <laughs> we need another boat. So we give it one more try and we build a boat called Liberty and we give Johan Valentine the chance. Even after he built a boat 
not understanding the rule well enough to know if it could even compete, which it couldn't. And he builds a boat called Liberty. And the first day we go sailing Liberty, we go out and sail against freedom and freedom's kicking our butt. So I go, oh God. So those who know me know that I spend my life trying to stay dry on boats. I offered to go swimming because I said, there's no way this boat can be that slow. It looks nice and we got to have something on the bottom or some weed or whatever. So I went swimming, went down to the bottom of the keel, went back and looked at the rudder and I don't even like the water. So, but I offered to do it and I come up and I go, hey guys, I got bad news. There's nothing on the bottom. So we kept tuning the boat, tuning the boat, tuning the boat. Eventually we got it almost as fast as freedom. So we figured let's make freedom a better light air boat. So we go to Johan because Sparkman Stevens is, we're a little on the outs now because we didn't give him the boat to design. And we go, Johan, what could we do to make freedom faster in light air? Because that was its Achilles heel. Just to have one more shot at, you know, having a good boat for the cup. So he goes, well, that's simple. You just shorten the water line and you put more sail area on. And meanwhile, between 1980 and 1983, they had changed the rule on the minimum freeboards. And Freedom was quite a low freeboard boat and they had made it a little higher and they had grandfathered Freedom. So we lost our grandfather, we made the boat shorter and we ended up with the same sail area. How stressful, <laughs> what a nightmare. So now we got to race Liberty. So what most people don't know although I'm sure the story's been told, but we decided that we were deficient in speed because Australia too was pretty fast with these wing keels. And we actually tried a couple wings on Freedom or maybe one of the other boats and couldn't really make it work because the whole key of Australia too is that the keel was upside down. So the, all the weight was in the bottom and they ended up with a short waterline boat, but a minimum waterline boat that had good stability and was actually pretty good in the breeze, not because of its length, but because it was stiff. So we tried that. We kind of gave up on that idea and figured we better figure out how to make Liberty fast. So we went to the, we went to the measures and said, we'd like to have two measurement certificates and we'll put the boat in the measurement trim for the, any, for the day that we're going to race and we'll file our measurement certificate and on the day of the race. So anyway, long story short, they allowed it. When the, when the, um, when a challenger puts in his final challenge, his final challenge the night before the race, he has to sign a declaration that he abided by all the rules and that the boat was designed and built in the country of origin, all the design work and all the building was done in the country of origin and that um, they were and that they abided by all the rules. So the night before they go to Alan Bond and, and um, the team and they go, you haven't signed the declaration. He says, screw you, we're not going to sign it. So this is the night before the regatta and the New York Yacht Club have been whipsawed so much in the press by, you know, the hundred and whatever it was, 29 year 
winning streak and being unfair, you know, not letting people use the, the technology from the United States and whatever. They were so beaten down in the press, they just said, okay, bring it on. And they figured we beat them somehow. So you know, the, you know how the race came out, but the first race we beat them because they broke down. They, we started ahead of them, they passed us. We go down the run and Dennis and I look over there and they're on port, we're both on port jibe. And I go, you know, they're not really looking at us right now. Let's jibe to starboard. So we jibe over to starboard and they're caught unaware. I don't know why, but they weren't paying attention. So they figured it out and they figured it was a little late to, uh, to jibe. So they tried to duck us and they broke their steering when they ducked us. So we beat them in that race because they were a little hindered. The start of the second race, they, I'm watching them and they, we beat them at the start and I'm seeing them having trouble with their main halyard and the main halyard fell down a little bit. So the, the hook broke that held it up. And so they were, that the, the, the boom was down on the deck and they were hampered by, cause they couldn't trim hard enough and we barely beat them. So then this, and then they, and there was a protest in that race. So I had to give the protest because I always gave the protest for the team. So I said, and it was for tacking too close. And I was worried that maybe we had tacked too close. And I know it's a hard, it's a hard protest to defend. So I went to the guys that were in the blimp because the blimp was up there every day. And I know that if you look at the film that they're doing, that sometimes it makes it look further away than it really is because it's, it's the opposite of foreshortening or maybe it is foreshortening. So we take the film and we take the, the, the time, the, the tacking too close and we, we stop, we make it into stills. And I made a book that you could, you could go through. I had help obviously. And we made a book and we showed them frame by frame by frame and said, look, we didn't tack too close. And they had sort of a week, a week, uh, protest, you know, uh, offense and we won the protest. So now we're up to zip and we're feeling pretty good. All you gotta do is win two more races. So the next race is in light air and they kick our butt. They win by four minutes or whatever. So we go, okay, two, one. The next race we go out and you, you know, match racing better than anybody. Surely we cross them on port at the start cross them on port. So when, when have you seen that happen? And it was in a wind range that they were really quick in, but we did a really good job sort of fending them off. And we beat them, I think by 10 seconds or 20 seconds, it was a real fight to the, to the end. And what a lot of people don't know is that our, our lured, our lured, um, uh, lower, the the uh the pin that holds it to the chain plate fell into the bilge and nobody noticed it and i walked up forward to tell the guys what we were thinking for the next leg and i go up there and i'm holding on to the lured uh the lured lower and it's all loose and i pull it out of the chain plate and i go to bob campbell is this the way this is supposed to be and he goes holy shit runs down to the bottom of the boat scurries around can't find the pin, finally finds it in the bilge underwater, sticks it back in and we had to jibe just to save the mast.
So that was a horror show. So we beat them by 10 seconds. So now we're up 3-1. What could go wrong from there? I'm not sure we've ever left part one of the podcast at such an important moment in sporting history. For 132 years, the New York Yacht Club had held the trophy that had become the America's Cup. 24 times, syndicates from other nations had journeyed to Newport, sailed the regatta and lost. And here is Tom with Dennis Connor and the team on Liberty, 3-1 up in a first of four against the Australians. What happens next, listeners, is sporting legend. Do tune in to the next episode to give it a listen. It's also by far not the end of Tom's story. To Tom, for all his time, I must say a massive thank you. It was a pleasure sitting down with him to record this chat. He was very generous with his time. Tom, on behalf of everyone listening to this, a big, big thank you. If you've enjoyed the pause and would like to support it, please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. We work hard to bring you a real quality ad-free listen and it's lovely to have your support. Many, many thanks for that. And thanks too to the relentless hard work and talent of the wonderful Tim at Vertigo Films for producing these podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Castle One. Great speaking. speaking. Oh my God, on boundary up ahead, 35 seconds out. Okay, lower and faster here. Lower and faster here. Oh, oh, oh. That's a good one, Jimmy. Still gaining on the line, lad. Gaining on the line, lad. We're looking at 10-5, 42. Matching him on the boundary, yeah. Copy. This is Castle One standing by. Out.